This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading medical research schools. How will advances in artificial intelligence transform medical research and medical care? To find out, we invite you to read a special supplement to Science Magazine prepared by Icon Mount Sinai in partnership with Science. Just visit our website at science.org and search for Frontiers of Medical Research Artificial Intelligence. On May 1st and May 2nd, ICON, Mount Sinai, and the New York Academy of Sciences will be convening a major symposium in New York City on the new wave of AI in healthcare. For more information and to register, please visit events.nyas.org slash AI health. That's events.nyas.org slash AI health. The ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. This is the Science Podcast for November 3rd, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up on this week's show, turning anemones into corals. Newsletter editor, Christy Wilcox, joins me to discuss why anyone would want to do this and a few other fun animal stories from the site, like measuring primate menopause and counting cat facial expressions. Next up on the show, why it's so hard to make drugs for brain diseases. Researcher Stephen Hyman talks about the state of treatments for neurological and psychiatric disorders and how to overcome some of the big hurdles in the field. Finally, in a sponsored segment from our custom publishing office, Associate Editor of Custom Publishing, Jackie Oberst, chats with Thomas Fuchs, Dean of AI and Human Health and Professor of Computational Pathology and Computer Science at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. They discuss artificial intelligence in healthcare and how to balance its risks and benefits. Now we have news editor, Christy Wilcox. She took time out of her busy schedule pushing out a daily newsletter to write a story about turning sea anemones into coral, or at least attempting to do that. Hi, Christy. Hi. Why would anybody want to take a perfectly good sea anemone and turn it into coral? What these researchers are doing is they are trying to create a model system for studying biomineralization. And that's the process of making minerals in an organism. That's something that corals do all the time, right? Reefs are made of these minerals that corals, these teeny tiny little animals, have laid down over time. So understanding how they do that is something that scientists are really keen to do because that can help tell them how climate change is going to affect how they make reefs or just in general understanding these organisms better and and how they do what they do. And why are we not just growing coral in labs? Like, why do we have to go to another source? And that is the million dollar question, right? Why not just take some coral and grow them in a lab and poke around and try to figure out what they're doing? Well, turns out corals are really finicky. They're very hard to keep alive well and also to manipulate. 
in terms of genetics. So they aren't a good system for, say, knocking down a gene and then seeing what happens in that gene. So are C anemones easier to grow in the lab or to change genetically? This particular one, the starlet C anemone, it's actually a model organism. So you can create different transgenic lines. You can grow them really easily in the lab. They are absolutely fantastic to work with. That is where this kind of came from is the lead researcher here, Mark Martindale, he had been working with these anemones forever, studying their development, you know, sticking genes in them or reporters and for genes in them and all this stuff. And the way he described it, he'd kind of gotten bored because he understood how the development of this animal worked so well that he, he was just like, I'm bored. Now what? What he thought was, well, if I understand how this works, if I really understand how they develop, then I should be able to mess with it. Mm -hmm. I should be able to decide to make them do something by tinkering with that development. And that's where he got the idea of trying to get them to become a coral, to become a biomineralizing animal. You know, they're pretty closely related to corals in the big scheme of things. Okay. Anemones do have some of the genes that have been implicated in creating these minerals. They just don't have all of them. And that's where Mark Martindale and his team, their goal was to see if they could give anemones these genes. And they did. They succeeded, at least in one gene that they were able to give. It's called an intrinsically disordered protein. But basically what it does is help bind to calcium ions and bring them in from seawater so that they can get combined with carbonate ions to create calcium carbonate, the material of reefs. And so what they were able to show is that they can make this anemone produce this protein and this protein is grabbing those calcium ions or it's concentrating them in parts of the anemone. So it's taking the very, very first steps on its way to making calcium carbonate. Now, they didn't, they didn't get crystals yet. They didn't get, you know, a reef yet, but they did get that it's making the protein and it is functioning. So it's the start of a system that they can develop further. They're going to maybe add on other components in future research? Their goal is to add more proteins one at a time, essentially. And then ideally, they want to get this anemone to make minerals. And then if they can get it to make coral minerals, they want to see if they can make it make sea urchin minerals. Oh. Or even mouse tooth enamel. They think that they could use this as a broad model system for basically any kind of biomineralization. Super interesting. And then you can also look at the perturbation side of things, like how do you... Right. Or ideally grow more teeth for people so we can stop. <laughs> or grow more teeth. But yeah, you can find <laughs> out how like it works when you, for example, if you take away a particular gene or if you have a slight difference in a particular gene. Is there a version of a particular gene that is more or less sensitive to temperature or more or less sensitive to the acidity of seawater? Or how you could tinker it with it intentionally. If you can genetically engineer a coral, like what gene should you give them to give them the most resilience? Oh, that is super interesting. Okay, so before I let you go, I just want to touch on a few other things that I've noticed in the newsletter. So this one about what is it, primate menopause? So chimpanzees actually go through menopause. I had no idea that that was the case because it always seemed like it's just us and whales, but no. That's been one of the really big evolutionary questions in this space is that we know that people obviously go through menopause and we've seen it in a handful of whale species, but 
it seems like no other mammals do it. And why? Yeah. Like what, what is menopause? Like what is the purpose of menopause? What, what benefit would there be to not having babies your whole life? Cutting off reproduction is one of those things where you're like, but evolution, it's all about reproduction, right? Like that's the whole point. Isn't that what you're for, right? Yeah. There's got to be a reason. At least that's, that's the idea. And so they looked at this population of chimpanzees and it's a wild population. They did some really fantastic analyses, both in terms of just observing when they had babies, right? Confirming that a lot of these females were not having babies after a certain point in their lives, but also they did hormonal analyses. And that's what a lot of the people that have talked about this paper, the outside experts really honed in on is these hormones changes that are associated with menopause in people. And they show that these chimpanzees are undergoing similar hormone changes. So it really does look like they are undergoing menopause and they are stopping reproducing for about 20% of their life. What does this say about other primates like monkeys, gorillas? Do we know if they're going through similar hormonal changes? We don't, for the most part, no. And that's, that's part of one of the things that this study really opens up is the idea that we need to look. We need to perform these sort of long-term difficult studies to really find out. But there was also a very interesting paper that happened to come out the same day that talks a bit about whether or not other mammals go through menopause. Now, the trick with this other paper is that menopause is defined as the end of menstruation. And there's actually very few animals that menstruate in terms of mammals. Like, it's kind of an exclusive club. Oh. A lot of other mammal animals, like rodents, for example, they don't menstruate. They just reabsorb that uterine tissue at the end of their, what would have been their menstrual cycle. It's wasteful. Yeah, so that it doesn't come out. <laughs> There's no blood, you know, coming out. It's getting pulled back in. And if you define menopause as just menstruation, then you can't compare whether or not, you can't say whether or not a mouse has menopause, right? Because they don't menstruate. But they do ovulate. And so what these other researchers did is they looked at whether or not there is a point in an animal's life when it stops ovulating. And so they call this oopause instead of menopause. And the idea is that that is a more consistent metric by which you can still ask this question, like, do female mammals in general stop being fertile, stop reproducing at a certain point in their lives and have a chunk of their lives where they are not reproducing. And they found it in like 80% of the species they looked at. Wow. And it was a bunch of zoo animals. So the idea is that actually menopause or whatever you want to call this phenomenon of, of stopping reproducing before you die <laughs> might actually be really widespread across a lot of mammals. And that, that opens up a whole bunch of questions as to why, right? Yeah, that's really interesting. But if it is the default, if it is the default, like it could be, you know, like, is there something about mammalian reproduction that almost requires it? Yeah, really cool. Yeah. The other one I wanted to touch on, because again, this is all animals all the time over here, but this is about hat facial expressions. I was like so surprised that I guess that this was studied at all, that they have so many. This was just amazing. It is so fascinating. I mean, it's not actually that surprising when you think about it. If you interact with cats all the time, you know when they're upset, you know when they're happy, you can see it on their faces. And that's basically what these researchers showed is they took a bunch of video footage of cats and they had just 
countless hours, I think, of footage of these animals interacting with one another. They include ears, obviously, and eyes. And what, whiskers? A couple dozen different muscle movements that are involved in making these 276, I want to say, but it was almost 300 faces. Wow. How does that compare to people? People can make a lot of faces, too. <laughs> I'm making a lot right now. <laughs> I was to say, it's so sad that the podcast doesn't have, have video because I think we've made quite a few throughout this entire chat. But, but what it is notable, as far as I understand it, is that it's more than you would expect for a wild animal that's not super social. Cats in general, wild cats, this isn't what they do. They don't communicate facially with each other all the time. And so the idea is that it's possible that domestic cats have more of these expressions than wild ones and that they kind of developed them in an evolutionary scenario because of their interactions with people, with a species that does care a lot about faces. Oh, so interesting. What have we done to our domesticated animals? All right, Christy, we're going to have to wrap it up there. I really appreciate you coming on. This is always so fun to talk about all these little stories. Thank you. I am always happy to join. All right. If you want to check out the newsletter, you can go to science.org slash podcast. We'll link to it from there and it'll come to your inbox every weekday. Yep. Every weekday. All right. Thanks, Christy. Thank you. Up next, we're going to talk about developing drugs for brain diseases and some of the big challenges in treating everything from Alzheimer's to schizophrenia. This week's episode is brought to you in part by the Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award. Are you doing excellent research that deserves recognition? The Nomis and Science Young Explorer Award recognizes bold young researchers who ask fundamental questions at the intersection of the life and social sciences. Researchers who take risks to address relevant and exciting questions with creative approaches, regardless of the research outcome. Submissions are due May 15th. Visit science.org slash nomis, that's N-O-M-I-S, to apply today. It is not easy to study the brain. Just learning how it functions, generates thoughts, actions, how it develops over time is an enormous puzzle. And when things go wrong, like in dementia or depression, the puzzles pile up. This week in Science Translational Medicine, Steve Hyman and colleagues wrote about the state of treatments for neurological and psychiatric disorders, particularly addressing why pharmaceuticals have been so slow to appear for life-altering diseases like Parkinson's or schizophrenia. Steve is here to take us through the issues and how they might be resolved. Hi, Steve. Hi, nice to be here. Yeah, I'm glad to have you. This is such an interesting topic because I think, obviously, so many of us are affected by these kinds of disorders, whether it's neurodegeneration, like Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, or psychiatric diseases, but their treatments are pretty limited. At the beginning of the article, you compare the progress in medicines for these types of diseases with other disorders. What are some of the biggest differences in progress that you've noticed? Can you quantify for us how it is so much slower going? We're in this situation where the pharmaceutical industry is down to just a handful of serious discovery projects, whereas there are many hundreds or thousands of projects in cancer, metabolism, autoimmunity. And the question really is, what's happened? Right. You know, the industry did very well in psychiatry without knowing any mechanisms and then kind of ran out of gas because 
in the end, relying on serendipity is not the best plan. The uh, 1960s were the age of Valium and its friends, the late 80s and 90s, the age of Prozac. And then actually later than that, antipsychotic drugs became big profit earners for pharma. But then as payers and regulators started to demand more efficacy, that is drugs that worked better yeah. and drugs that were safer and drugs that were truly novel, it became clear to everybody that nobody knew how to do that. And so industry has steadily over the last two decades de-emphasized psychiatry. So one of the main holdups that you point out for progress in this area is how these diseases are described and diagnosed at the clinical level. Why is this such a big problem for developing treatments? Well, it is rather remarkable in the beginning of the 21st century that there are no objective medical diagnostic tests for psychiatric illness. You can't blow up a blood pressure cuff equivalent. You can't draw blood and measure a hemoglobin. Instead, we have these checklists in the DSM. And, you know, the DSM has its major origins in the science of the 1960s, before neuroscience even really formed as a subject, before there were any things like MRIs, before any modern genetics. And so the diagnoses are based on clinical descriptions, the history of the patient, and what the uh, doctor sees, but nothing objective. And uh, frankly, it's a mess. It's wrong more than it's right. And what that gets you then is when you're going to test a treatment, you have this population of patients and you don't know if the underlying biology, the underlying mechanism is the same for them. You don't know if you're targeting the same thing, if they're all being measured in this very descriptive way. That's absolutely right. If you take depression, about 20% of, of uh, Americans, most Europeans and so forth, are likely to have a depression worth treating sometime in their life. So 20% lifetime risk. Anything that's affecting that high a percentage of people is going to be very, very heterogeneous. People can have their first depression as a child, or they can have it when they're elderly and developing Alzheimer's disease. The current diagnostic system, the DSM-5, gives you the same diagnosis with either of them. And we know that they're not the same. But if you're doing a clinical trial, now companies wouldn't have a nine-year-old and a 90-year-old in the same trial. It's true, but, but lots of people are in these clinical trials whose underlying biology is different, but we have no way of knowing. And so the drugs look pretty bad. Yeah. So as you point out in your review, let's figure out, let's understand the disease mechanisms. Let's identify, you know, biomarkers that are objective and, and can be measured over time in, in different populations. This is going to help us with diagnosis. This is going to help us come up with targets for treatment. But there are just a lot of blockages in the way of getting to that point. You know, quite a few of the issues you outlined are really just big problems in science in general. Lack of diversity in the patients and trials and in the genomes that we sequence is a big one. Yes. How has that been particularly harmful for the development of treatments for neurological and psychiatric disorders? If we just start with the lack of diversity of medical genetics, it is still true that something above 90% of medical genetics is done on people of European ancestry. And we have pretty good evidence, at least in the diseases that I know about, that the underlying mechanisms are not different 
in people of different ancestries, but the genetic pointers to those illnesses are quite different. And so when we use aggregate genetic tests, something called a polygenic risk score, and we try to apply it to the population in which it was developed, Europeans typically, it performs quite well, still probabilistic, still incomplete, but it performs quite well. As you move away from that, by the time you get to people of African ancestry, these genetic tests do terribly. And so if we want to have what's called precision medicine or personalized medicine, often people are thinking about personalizing something between me and my neighbor. But actually, we right now could not serve about 80% of the world's populations because we haven't done our homework in terms of the medical genetics. Yeah. So we're missing out on knowledge, true knowledge about how things work. And we're also missing out on equity, making sure that people all benefit from science. Yep. You know, the big problems in psychiatry and neurology is that the human brain is, it's our most complex organ. In fact, our most complex organ by far. But also people forget that we have no access to tissue in life. Yes, you can biopsy somebody if you think they have a malignant brain tumor, but we can't get tissue. You know, in can cancer is a hard problem, but the surgeon does an excisional biopsy and literally hands the disease to the scientist. And then you can sequence the DNA of the tumor and find all of the mutations that have formed in it. We can't do that. So we we need to be modeling in imperfect models. Animals don't really ever get anything we would call a psychiatric illness or most neurologic illnesses. We use cellular models. They're great for genetics, but they don't have brains. And this is really a hard problem. And so I think part of the emphasis of the article is that we have to focus more where it is ethically and pragmatically possible on humans, on their genetics, on biomarkers. Let's talk a little bit about biomarkers here. In the paper, you give this good example of how this has progressed um, in Alzheimer's disease, first starting with looking at amyloid and then getting refined and more complicated. So in Alzheimer's disease, the very first clinical trials focused on amyloid failed miserably. And when the patients who had been in those trials came to autopsy, it turned out that fully 30% of them did not have amyloid in their brains. That is, they didn't have Alzheimer's disease. They had other forms of dementia. And the best research clinicians couldn't look at them and tell who had what kind of pathology. Psychiatry is, is very much in that situation, it's actually indeed worse. So what happened in, in Alzheimer's disease is that investigators began to look first in the cerebrospinal fluid, the fluid that bathes the brain. And they were able to determine that as Alzheimer's disease gets going, the amyloid peptides actually go down. There's less of them in the cerebrospinal fluid. They're being deposited into these amyloid plaques in the brain. And another damaging protein called tau begins to go up. And now we have many, many other biomarkers. We have a really important biomarker of injury called neurofilament light, which is abbreviated NFL. Somebody has a good sense of humor. Oh, no. And... There will soon be blood tests for Alzheimer's. Are we ready, everybody? Are the treatments good enough? Maybe not, but you know, these things will come together. So we can do some of these things in psychiatry. I think that there will be these fluid biomarkers beginning in cerebrospinal fluid in maybe a bit more muted in schizophrenia, and that would be incredibly helpful for treatment. 
For others like depression and anxiety, biomarkers might come from brain imaging because those are really primarily conditions of abnormal circuit function. But we need these objective markers. We can now, with technology, make a focused effort. And I think that's what it's going to take, above all, to bring industry back into brain science. Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit about fixing some of this. We, we've mentioned some technologies that might be helpful. What about projects? Are there big projects on the horizon that could help diversify the data that we have available? Yep. There are two kinds of projects. One is advanced technology that's helping us understand the biology of the brain, which is just going to be the critical foundation for all of this. We have been involved in studying schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and autism in diverse places in uh, East Africa, South Africa, and you know, to be a good partner and to leave the investigator community better than you found it, if you can, while gaining this critical information, both for science and equity, is no small feat. And I, I just think we have to be more serious about tooling up to do this so that we can apply ultimately what might be called precision medicine to everyone. Now, from the point of view of brain biology, what's really remarkable is that there is now a very substantial, it's called Brain Initiative, supported by different federal agencies. And what's made possible, these efforts, are new technologies. I wish I could say we'd gotten smarter, but what we have are incredible new tools, genomic technologies, but also computational tools and computing power and storage all came together just around the turn of this century. And that has changed everything. And this technological revolution included uh, Yamanaka in Japan, who appropriately won a Nobel Prize, figuring out how to make pluripotent stem cells out of adult cells, uh, which created a lot of the ethical concerns that had existed. Well, you add these things up and we begin to have a foundation, a platform that helps us interpret the genetics so if we make a certain finding in schizophrenia that there's a gene called complement factor four that's important, well, we only have 21,000 genes or so, and they do lots of different things. So we have to figure out what this complement factor four does in the body, in the brain that matters for schizophrenia. And as we take apart the brain cell by cell, we now have an opportunity to sort of pinpoint to connect biology with disease. And that's what's really exciting. Thank you so much, Steve. Well, it's been a pleasure talking. Steve Hyman is director of the Stanley Center for Psychiatric Research at the Broad Institute. You can find a link to the Science Translational Medicine article we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Up next, we have a custom segment sponsored by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Custom Publishing Associate Editor Jackie Oberst chats with Thomas Fuchs about how artificial intelligence is poised to change healthcare in ways we never imagined. The views expressed in custom segments are those of the guests and do not reflect policies of science or AAAS. Hello to our podcast listeners, and welcome to this custom-sponsored interview from the Science AAAS Custom Publishing Office and brought to you by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. My name is Jackie Oberst, and I'm Associate Editor for Custom Publishing here at Science. 
Siri, Alexa, and now ChatGPT, artificial intelligence is rapidly entering our lives. It is changing how we learn, teach, work, and how we care for our sick. Healthcare produces much more data than finance and entertainment combined. So it makes sense for machine learning to help handle this wealth of information. But is it entirely helpful? Are there areas in which AI might be hurtful? And how do we regulate these opportunities and challenges? Today, I'm pleased to welcome Thomas J. Fuchs. Dr. Fuchs is a scientist in a groundbreaking field of computational pathology, focused on the use of AI to analyze images of tissue samples to identify diseases, recommend treatments, and predict outcomes. Dr. Fuchs has led the development by ICON in partnership with Science of a special supplement to science that will be published this month. It's a collection of articles focused on the potential and evolving role of AI in healthcare. And Dr. Fuchs has written an excellent lead essay that frames the importance and implications of the topic. Additionally, Dr. Fuchs is Dean of AI and Human Health and Professor of Computational Pathology and Computer Science at the ICON School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. In this role, he will lead the next generation of scientists and clinicians to use AI and machine learning to develop novel diagnostics and treatments for acute and chronic disease. Thomas, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me today. Thank you, Jackie. Thank you for having me. So let's get started here. In your own words, please define AI and machine learning. Uh, good questions to start, and uh, of course not as easy a definition as you think it would be. So maybe very broadly speaking, so these days artificial intelligence has evolved into an umbrella term. Broadly meaning computer software that mimics human capabilities. That is often very narrow AI, so systems that really tailor to some specific task, like for example, cancer detection or outcome prediction. Sometimes it's more broader. So when we, for example, build these larger foundation models that can be used for many different tasks in the language space, they're for example, also used for these chat programs like ChatGPT. And in healthcare, we use these systems, for example, to build cancer detection algorithms and models for all kinds of cancer, also the rare cancers. Machine learning, on the other hand, that's the scientific field that deals with building these systems. At the end of the day, what AI gives us are tools. And these tools are very powerful tools. And they will transform, as you said, many areas of our lives, education, work, healthcare, and they will transform some jobs more than others. And that's, of course, part of technology development throughout human history, that every leap of technology led to change. And humans have seen to be very adaptable, and every phase change in technology led also to a plethora of new jobs and also of more interesting jobs. But in a very practical sense, it's of course our responsibility as a society to also handle the transformation we are in front of the AI-driven transformation of jobs in the various areas in a diligent way that nobody is left behind. So let's talk about the potential impacts of AI on medical research and on clinical care. Do you think AI in healthcare is helpful, harmful, or a bit of both? First of all, it's absolutely necessary. If you look at the statistics, for example, in pathology, that's a good example. The number of pathologists goes down, fewer people go into pathology, the number of cancer cases goes up and to actually bridge that gap, just to keep the standard of care in the US, we're gonna need AI. 
Second of all, in, in many parts of the world, there are not even enough pathologists, there are just a few, and their AI will have drastic impact on cancer care. It's not only patient care, it's also physician well-being. You have these enormous burnout rates of physicians, of nurses, and AI can help physicians to do their job not only better, but also be more pleasant. A good example is in primary care, where there now exist systems that can automatically transcribe the conversation between physician and patient associated with a uh, medical record. And that means the, the physician has time for the patients. They don't have to sit in front of the PC and write down these reports, either while the patient is there or late at night. So that's a very simple example. But in, in healthcare in general, not only for AI, for any technology that's applied, we have to make sure it does no harm, as he said. We have to make sure it works for everyone, regardless of your background. So what other issues does AI pose for physicians and patients? So first of all, there is not enough AI. Pathology, again, is a good example. You have these thousands of startups and all the PR and even use articles and video feeds every day about new breakthroughs. But in practice, in pathology, there's just a single AI that has been proven to be safe and effective and is approved by the FDA. In radiology, there are hundreds. In pathology, there's just one. That means a physician who wants to use AI that's safe and effective to have a choice of one. So second, education is important. So education also for our, our healthcare professional, nurses and physicians, how AI can be used in different kinds of settings. So it's very important, of course, that uh, FDA-approved systems have indications of use that tell you exactly how AI would be applied in that specific setting. Because these are very, very laser-sharp tools. They are not broad stroke instruments, right? They're really tailored for a specific use and have to be used like that, like any other medical test or medical instrument or medical device. Lastly, it's also important, of course, to understand that Currently, there are no autonomous systems in healthcare proof. All of these systems are support systems, breathe systems, decision support system. So the final decision is always with the physician. AI just delivers additional information that has been shown to help them drastically improve accuracy and reduce error rates. So how should the government go about regulating AI? One approach to do that is tie the level of scrutiny and level of regulation to the complexity of the system. And AI is highly complex. For example, there are other applications like what digital scanner to use in pathology or immunohistochemistry stains and so forth, where the risk is relatively low and single lab directors and physicians can attest if a technology works, which is fine. But if you think about AI, which is built on data very broadly, where the evaluation strategies have to be as diligent and as accurate as the development of these systems, there you really need teams of experts to make sure these systems actually work. And that's what the FDA can do. That's, of course, a huge effort. So in, in our own case, it took us two years to get the AI through clearance and thousands of pages of, of submission that everything has to be, of course, tracked and in quality management system. But, and then you have these large studies you have to execute, but there we could show that 
AI we build in pathology led to a reduction of error of 70%, 7-0. Wow. So clear impact. But if you don't do that and you just rely on the PR of some company or some single ROC curves, and you cannot rely on these technologies. And it would be unfair to a single lab director to test that uh, themselves. These days, there's still a loophole, which hopefully the FDA will close. So you mentioned in your article that there is a moral obligation for those in healthcare to advance AI responsibly. How so and why? So there are very clear statistics. One of them is that just recently there was an article that nicely laid out that every single year in the U.S. there are 800,000 patients who die or are permanently disabled because of diagnostic mistakes. Wow. 800,000. That's a big number. Um, there are articles, if you think of cancer care, that 20% of diagnoses are uh, wrong to some degree. Hmm. Both can be addressed with AI systems, not of course immediately, but we can work towards it. I gave an example in pathology, a reduction of error of 70%. And that means we should not stop AI development in any way in healthcare and push forward to build safe and effective and equitable AI as fast as possible to help patients. I think there's a clear moral obligation to hold against all these doomsayers and their existential science fiction tropes and make sure we build AI that helps patients. Well, the future sounds a lot brighter than what science fiction doomsayers <laughs> predict. Well, absolutely. I mean, we will look back at the present in 20 years and we will think we were in the, in the dark ages. That's something I can promise you for sure. Thomas, it's been a real pleasure having this opportunity. Thank you for joining me. Thank you, Jackie. It was really a pleasure. Our thanks to the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai for sponsoring this interview. I'm Jackie Oberst. Thank you for listening. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. If you have any comments or suggestions, write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. To find us on the apps, search for Science Magazine. Or you can listen to the show on our website, science.org slash podcast. This show was edited by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, Triple AS, thanks for joining us.